0: As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Mark chapter 1, verse 2 to 3. It is a foundational belief of our Christian faith that life is founded upon the bedrock of our participation within scripture and tradition. Yet how many of us can say that we have an understanding of what these two terms mean regarding the way that we live our lives? How many of us can say that we've seriously read the scriptures and wrestle alongside those who have devoted their lives to understanding the depth of their meaning? And ultimately, what do these texts written over 2,000 years ago have to say to us living in the 21st century? These, among many others, are the questions that we will be wrestling with in this weekly Bible study. My name is Nick Batsoulas, and I invite all of you to join our St. John the Baptist community as we set out to meet Christ in the scriptures. And by wrestling with these texts and searching for their meaning in our life, it is my hope that we, like John the Baptist and all the saints who have come before us, may continue to make his path straight. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study, Make His Path Straight. I'm Nick Votzoulis, and once again, I'm happy to have you all here with me on the third week of Lent, 2023. I pray that you all are having a strong Lenten journey and that God continues to strengthen you as we move through now almost the center of great and holy Lent. So over the past two weeks, we have been talking about the gospel according to St. Luke. And last week and the week before, we broke down chapter one. And now, as chapters go, we will be moving on to chapter two. I think it's important very quickly for me to highlight, if any of you are interested, some of the patristic texts, the texts of the Church Fathers I've been using for this Bible study, primarily because there aren't many of them for the Gospel according to St. Luke, and the same way that there are even fewer for the Gospel according to St. Mark. But I've been using Cyril of Alexandria's commentaries on Luke, as well as Blessed Theophylax commentaries on Luke and they do a very good job of walking through the entire gospel and kind of expounding upon from their own perspective of their day what it is that's happening within the text. So if you're interested in looking at those sources as well as any of the sources that I've been using uh, at the end in the show notes, I have a full list of every book that I've been reading for this process. And I'm only mentioning all of that again because the goal of this podcast isn't for me to just look at all of you and kind of ramble. It's for me to be able to give you the tools that I wish I had before I started all of this so that way you can go and look into the text deeper on your own if that's something of interest to you. So with all of that out of the way, Let's move on to Luke chapter 2. Actually, before we move on, I think it's important to give a little bit of a brief summary of what happened in chapter 1, especially since we broke it up over the span of two weeks. So within the first chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke, we saw the announcement of the birth of St. John the Baptist. And Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, we hear was hidden for three months, so that way Mary would know—I believe six months, actually— so that way Mary would know that the sign the angel gave her, that the Christ was to be born of her, was true. So fast forward after the conception of John, we have the Annunciation, which we're about to celebrate. And the Annunciation is when the angel Gabriel appears to Mary. Remember this 12 to 14-year-old girl— And tells her that she's going to bear a son, and that son's name will be Jesus. And when Mary, who has free will and choice in this equation, willingly submits herself to the will of God and accepts to allow for the Messiah, the Christ, to be born of her, we hear that she is blessed among women. And the sign that she will be given, that all of these things will truly come to pass, is that her cousin Elizabeth, who was old and perceived to be barren is now very much so pregnant with a child so Mary goes immediately to visit her cousin Elizabeth and when she meets Elizabeth it said that the baby in her womb St. John leaps for joy and Elizabeth is then filled with the Holy Spirit so that's the prophecy of what's coming that's the confirmation of what's happening there and then after that we hear of the birth of St. John And we also hear about Zechariah, his father's prophecy of all of the things that have come to pass. And within that prophecy, within that song, we see two things happening. We see primarily Zechariah prophesying of the Christ who is coming. But then afterwards, in the second part of the prophecy, Zechariah addresses his child, the eight-day-old John who has just been named, and he speaks of the role that he's going to play as the forerunner who's gonna prepare the way for the Lord. So that's the preamble about what we've seen so far. And moving on, we're gonna see in the beginning of chapter two, the birth of Jesus. Something that, as Vince over here reminded us, may be very familiar to us from our dear friend Linus from the Peanuts and the Charlie Brown Christmas special. So with all that out of the way, let's move on to verse 1 of chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled. This was the first enrollment when Cornelius was governor of Syria. And all went to be enrolled, each to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to his city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be enrolled with Mary his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to be delivered. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. So breaking down what's happening here, If we look in the first verse, what's happening with the identification of Caesar Augustus and Cornelius? Well, we see again, since St. Luke is writing a history from a Hellenistic perspective, he's dating his text. He's dating the events that are taking place. And they didn't have the concept of BC 80 that we have today. So the way that events would be dated would be identifying who are the rulers of that day. Yes, we don't have any, well, at least physical evidence of the existence of Cornelius, but these things pop up all the time, historically, primarily because you don't hear much about rulers throughout history unless they did something extremely significant. For instance, we all know the records of Caesar Augustus, so if there's a scarce amount of evidence, we'll say, of a ruler existing, well, that's not an indicator that that ruler didn't exist, but rather it's an indicator that maybe they just didn't make socially a massive impact on their governing. So with that out of the way, we see, okay, Luke is continuing his motif. He's dating the things that are happening. And we see that's around the time when Caesar Augustus was ruler and same with Cornelius in Syria. And we hear that all went to be enrolled each to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. So there's a census that's taking place and the reason why a census would take place is because the romans needed to get a count of all of the people within the empire they were occupying and if that was the case well what's the best way to try to do that when you have a bunch of nomadic people such as we see within the israelites well you have to call them all back to their homeland you need to call them all back to their hometown in a sense so that way they can keep an account of who's where and what they're doing So that way the Romans can figure out, okay, how much money is coming back for us in our taxes, the taxation that we're gonna have of these people. And further proof that we're gonna see of this nomadic motif is gonna come from the shepherds who we'll see in the next section, because these are people who lived with their flock and they lived in the wilderness with that flock. In the same vein, a lot of people within the Roman Empire had jobs like that. They didn't all have homes like we think of today or towns like we think of today. So it's for that reason that Joseph is called from Galilee to Bethlehem. And we see that, again, Joseph is in the lineage of David. And something else that's important that we see here in verse 5 is that he's with his betrothed Mary. So Mary and Joseph have come together they are mary is no longer living in their parents house she is with her betrothed joseph and yet we see a very intentional workplace here by saint luke and that is betrothed it's not his wife mary because again the relationship that mary and joseph has is more of a protector protect protect protector and someone who he's in charge of caring for We'll see him take on that same role for the christ child after he's born and this is further proof that we have within our tradition that mary is ever virgin and moving a little bit further on we see that mary gives birth to her firstborn son and we need to kind of understand the context of this firstborn terminology Just because we hear firstborn doesn't mean that there were other children that came from Mary. But the title of firstborn is something that's so important within the context of the society of that day that it's always identified. And there are a few examples that I can't pull up off the top of my head, but I'm sure I could give you later, where we see the only born son of a woman referred to as firstborn son. And the reason for that, again, is that title of firstborn meant a lot within this culture. The title of firstborn meant that you would receive the vast majority of the inheritance and it would be your job to dish out that inheritance to your siblings and the rest of the people within the familial unit. You would eventually become the patriarch of that household when the patriarch, the father, passed away. So that's why this status of firstborn is so important. And theologically, we also have to think about it this way. Well, if Christ is the Messiah, if Christ is the only Son of God, well, what title does he also receive as Son of God? He is the firstborn. He is the firstfruits. And as we're going to see later in him, so in our participation in life in Christ, we become participants in that same gift. We all become of equal status with the firstborn of old because Christ ultimately is that firstborn of God, those first fruits. And we see that Mary wraps him in swaddling clothes, so she swaddles him as you would a baby today, and he's laying in the manger because there's no room in the inn. So this motif of having no space in Bethlehem has already been laid out for us in the beginning when we see that the census is taking place. Bethlehem is a small village. It's full of people right now who are coming back for the census. And because of all of that, there's no space for these poor people that we see in Mary and Joseph for them to be able to stay. So from humble beginnings, we see the birth of Christ take place. And we need to understand the broader context of what's happening in the world at this time, because within our understandings of great men of renown, we'll say, from a cultural perspective, there's usually this background of, well, they were born this dramatic way on this date with all of these radical things happening around them to elevate their glory, to elevate their status among other humans. And yet... How is Christ born? Well, the Christ is born in a manger surrounded by pure and unpure animals. He's in this lowly place. And it's from that lowly place in those humble beginnings that we see the true Savior of our souls born. This might be something that we take for granted because in America in particular, we, in our history, like to talk about all of the presidents and people who have come from these lowly beginnings. And if we look at a lot of older campaign trails, it's these fights between individuals being like, well, no, I was born in a log cabin or no, I was born in this lowly state. It's something that we pride ourselves with in our society now. But within the Roman society, within a Roman context, this would be completely contradictory. If you went around saying that your ruler, your king, was born in a manger, well, they'd look at you and they'd say, are you kidding me? Like, that guy wasn't meant for anything, because his destiny would be perceived as lying in where he was born, in the state that he was brought forth. He had to come from nobility. And yet, with Christ being in the line of David, we see that nobility is still at play. Yet, like david who was a simple shepherd and now as we move on to the second section we're going to see that played out more and why that motif is important but like david who came from humble beginnings christ has come from the most humble example that we can think of within the scriptures he needed to come from this lowly place so that way he could serve rather than going around waiting for people to serve him because that's the mission that he has He's come to reach out to all of humanity and not just those of high esteem, those of a high place. So, moving on to verse 8: And in the region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And then the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Be not afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will come to all the people. For to you is born this day in the city of David the Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in the manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see these things that have happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe laying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying which had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary kept all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned it, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So what we see here is we have shepherds in the region. So they're not too far off. Hypothetically speaking, they could easily make it to the manger within that day. And they're sleeping in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. So this is the stage. It's the middle of the night. They're in the desert. It's cold. And suddenly an angel of the Lord appears to them. And in like manner to the individuals we see in the Old Testament, as well as Zechariah and everyone that we've seen perceive an angel, besides Mary, they're overcome with fear they're filled with fear because they're seeing this thing that is beyond their comprehension. And what does the angel say? Well, the angel does what angels do whenever they appear to humans. They say, don't be afraid. Well, that's easy to say because these people are terrified because they're seeing something that they don't understand. And after the angel says not to be afraid, he tells them, behold, I bring you good news a great joy which will come to all the people. For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. And the city of David, remember, is the birthplace of the first Messiah, the birthplace of David. And the people have been waiting for this new Messiah who's going to liberate them from their oppressors. And so it's fitting that that Messiah will come from the same place because that Messiah was promised to come of the line of David. And we see that he is the Christ, the Lord. And again, we need to kind of understand these titles of Jesus. We think of Jesus and Christ as synonymous terms because as Christians we use them interchangeably. But the Christ is the anointed one. The Christ is the Messiah who is promised by God. And within this Hebrew context, what are they expecting that Christ to be? Well, they're expecting that Christ to be a military liberator. They're not expecting him to be the literal incarnate son of God. So what they get is something so much greater, and that's going to lead to something that we saw over and over again within the Gospel according to St. Mark. This confusion, this misunderstanding of the people, we're going to see even this misunderstanding from his own mother, the Theotokos. And that's because Christ comes to save us. But the way that God is saving us, the way that God is particip- is bringing rather, the salvation to the world, is through his own means, through his own will. So he's constantly breaking our perceptions of how things should be to show us the reality of things in him. So this is why, again, Christ is born in the manger. It's because our perception of reality is that the Savior, the Messiah, should be born in this high place. And yet, where is he? He's with the lowly. And that's why the gift of the gospel, especially as emphasized by St. Luke, is given to all of humanity, not just those in high esteem. And we see that the angel gives the shepherds a sign. And he says, the sign to you will be, you'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling gloves lying in the manger. So with any angelic revelation that we see, any revelation of God that is, there's always going to be a concrete sign that's attached to it. This isn't something as simple as people looking at tea leaves and seeing a symbol and all of a sudden saying, well, this is my fate. This is what God is trying to tell me. Rather, whenever an angel makes a proclamation, especially in the Old Testament or as we're seeing here, to somebody of some great revelation, the proof is going to be something that can't be explained. The truth is going to be revealed by something such as Mary greeting Elizabeth and the babe in her womb leaping for joy. These radical examples are what confirm these proclamations from God. And that's kind of a warning to us that if we're looking around for signs of the future or signs of things to come, well, it's not really how God has shown us that he manifests within the world. Everybody's constantly trying to predict when the ends of things will happen, and yet we forget that Christ tells us we will not know the time nor the hour when the Son of Man returns. Yet when God goes out of his way— through his messengers to give human beings a message of some great thing that is to come as we see here When those individuals are sent out because again, this has to be something that's accepted freely The shepherds debate against amongst themselves whether or not they're gonna go and they choose to go and see this great thing and when they see that the child is born in the manger Especially if we're understanding the broader context of what's happening where that's not something that would typically happen That's not actually a marker from a historical perspective of a great person being born When they see that it solidifies in their mind what is happening It's for this reason that beforehand we see the angels suddenly all appear around this one messenger and cry out glory to God in the highest on earth peace among men With whom he is well pleased. What does it take for us, humanity, to be pleasing in the eyes of the Lord? Well, if we go back to Mary, when she accepted to be a participant within the will of God, to allow for the Christ to dwell within her, we see that in her example of this cooperation, in her example of this aligning oneself with the ultimate will of God, that is what makes us pleasing in God's eyes. That is what makes us an acceptable offering in a sense. So when we offer our whole self to God, when we offer our whole life so that way we can be co-workers with him, that's when we're on this path. That's when we hear the angels cry out, Glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among men with whom he's well-pleased. That's with humanity, whom he is pleased. And the way that he is pleased of his creation, pleased us of us humanity, is when we willingly choose out of our free will to be co-workers and participants with his will. Because God isn't a tyrant. He's not coming to force us to participate in his will. Yet we are offered as a gift the ability to be able to be participants in that will. And the only way that we can kind of start to discern that will and figure out, okay, what is it that God is calling me to do as an individual, is by growing our relationship with him, by coming to church and participating liturgically in a life in Christ, by praying and in our own time setting out to try to build this relationship with him one-on-one, by reading his scriptures, that way he can speak directly to us, these are all ways that we grow this life in Christ, and it's through growing this life in Christ that we'll be able to discern, okay, what is it that he is calling me to do? What is it that will, what is it that I can do, rather, that will align me with the will of God? So these are the questions that we need to be asking, and these are the questions that are asked here by the shepherds. Because when they see the angel go away into heaven, The shepherds say to one another, okay, well, that was a weird thing. Let's go to Bethlehem and see the things that have happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Because the messenger of the Lord has just come. The messenger has told them. And then in dramatic fashion, we see all these other messengers appear and cry out as one. So they go with haste. They're not slowly making their way. They're taking their flock and they're going somewhere else and they're going as quickly as they can. And when they go there, they find Mary and Joseph and the Christ child lying in the manger. And when they see that everything was as the angels told them they would be, they go and cry out to all the people in the region glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. So what we see here is another example of St. Luke showing us his hand, in a sense. He's showing us his sources, because as we mentioned last week with a couple of these situations, such as the individuals who saw the great things happen with the birth of John— when we see this motif of groups of individuals going off and glorifying and praising God for all that they heard and saw, we see that the seeds are being planted by witnesses before the Christ has even been made fully manifest to the world. These shepherds, hypothetically speaking, were already going around and telling people of all the crazy things that they saw and this baby that they found laying in the manger, this baby of humble beginnings. And we see, again, an example of St. Luke showing his hand with sources here when we hear Mary kept all these things, pondering them in her heart. There are two things going on here. First of all, we see when she says that she kept all these things, pondering them in her heart, that means that she didn't go around telling people this until everything was made manifest. And where we know that Mary and St. Luke were close enough that he painted an icon of her and he had this relationship with her, well, then we know that she revealed these things to him after the ascension of Christ. But when we see that she keeps them and she ponders these things in her heart, we see that there's still some questioning happening from Mary of what type of child is this. She knows that the son that she's born is the son of God, but even she doesn't fully grasp what his life is going to entail because we know the whole story of christ i think oftentimes we assume that mary has the same foreknowledge of everything that's about to transpire but we're going to see in a couple of minutes with the prophecy of simeon that that's clearly not the case because she would not experience the pain and the suffering that she does of watching her son offer his life for the life of the world if she just knew that everything was going to be great if she knew that he was going to raise from the dead, truly, in her heart. And it's for this reason, again, that Mary's continuing to ponder and question all of these things. It's because she has a broader knowledge of what salvation is supposed to look like. And yet, in the coming of the Christ, even her expectations are flipped on their head. So, moving on to verse 21. And at the end of eight days... When he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. I think it's important for us to stop here because what we just read, the circumcision of the Lord, is actually one of the major feasts within our church tradition, one that's often overlooked because it's on January 1st. And oftentimes we celebrate the feast of St. Basil the Great over... The feast of the circumcision, and there's a lot of reasons for that. First of all, it's kind of strange for us to be talking about the circumcision of the Lord, uh, but there's a reason why this is there. There's a reason why this is part of the major feast, and it's that when we see that Christ is circumcised on the eighth day, well, the number eight symbolizes fulfillment. It's the number of fulfillment. It's the number ultimately in the resurrection that we see of this new life, of this renewal, because Christ raises from the dead on the new day of creation. So if this motif is already happening in the scriptures throughout the Old Testament, we got to ask ourselves, well, what is being fulfilled? Well, in the circumcision of Christ, we see that Christ is participating in the covenant between God and his people, And that covenant is a promise made first by Abraham to God that they, the Israelites, would be a people to the Lord and he would be a Lord to them. So it's this promise of subservience. It's this promise of having a relationship with Yahweh, the God of Israel. So when Christ is circumcised, we see that this promise is fulfilled. It's literally filled to its brim, as the word means, because the promise between God and Israel is now shown to be something even greater. And that promise is a liberation of all peoples, of all humanity, something that the Israelites were already praying for, because within the liturgical practice of the Jewish people, we saw them not only praying for themselves, but also praying for the world. Within the Old Testament, you have this motif, again, of all of these different tribes surrounding the Israelites who worship other gods. And Israel worships what they believe to be and who's ultimately manifest to be the one true God, Yahweh. And because of their devotion to him and because of the promise that he makes to them, there's this relationship, again, that takes place. Israel is the child of God and all of the people within that tribe are children of God and they have a distinct role and that role again is to be able to pray not only for one another not only for their remission of sins so that way they can continue to unite themselves to God but to do this prayer to make these sacrifices on behalf of the whole world that's the ultimate picture that's painted and that's something that Christians will adopt And it's for this reason that on the eighth day, when Christ is circumcised, we see this fulfillment, we see this taking place, that the promise is not only for one tribe of individuals, but the promise is for the world. And we see that he's given this name, Jesus, on this day, God with us, Emmanuel, and in giving him the name we see that it's been fulfilled what was prophesied by the angel Gabriel to Mary because the name which was given to him before he was even born is confirmed in this offering in the signing of the covenant with God that's later revealed to not be a mere signing of a covenant in the temporal way that had been before but ultimately a fulfillment of that covenant And we'll see later on a manifestation of the true salvation that has now come into the world through the Christ. So moving on to verse 22. And when the time came for the purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it was written in the law of the Lord, every male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice... According to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And inspired by the Holy Spirit, he came into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lest thou, thou thy servant depart in peace, according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to thy people Israel. So we see that 40 days have passed since the birth of Christ. And when the time comes for the purification, as for the law of Moses, the child and his mother come into the temple. The mother, Mary, for the rite of ritual purification and for the firstborn son, Jesus, to be offered to God. Because, again, this is what's part of being the firstborn son. You are the heir not only to the goods of your family, but you are the heir within this line of the children of Israel. And I think we need to kind of understand here, well, what does this mean for us Christians? Because this is a practice that we still engage in. Forty days after a baby is born, we bring that child into the church for the churching where the mother and the child are first welcomed back. And when that happens, the priest takes the baby up in their hands and brings them up to the altar table. And the reason for this isn't because the baby is going to be promised to be a priest someday or some of the other kind of folklore that surrounds the tradition, but rather it's because all children through Christ So all of us who are going to be baptized in the Christ, all of us who are living this life in Christ, as I mentioned earlier, are given this firstborn status. And yet, if we're going to live a life in Christ, as St. Paul tells us, we need to be co-crucified to him. We're making a promise of offering our whole life to Christ. So when we bring the child up in front of the altar, the place of sacrifice, the place where Christ offers us his body and his blood for the life of the world during every single Eucharistic gathering that we have. What we see is that child is being brought in this way into the fold. That child, even though they're not of an age of reason yet, is given the gift of becoming a child of God. And symbolically, that's what's taking place. So we all become firstborn, men and women alike, within a life in Christ. And if we're being brought up in a family that's already a Christian family, this is the reason why we have infant baptism. Because our baptism, our life in Christ, is something that we renew every single minute of every single day. It's not something that just happens once and then we're set or it's not something that has to happen multiple times that way we can wash away the stain of our sin. That's not the case. Rather, we are all elevated to the status. And even though we can lower ourselves in our sin, like the prodigal son, as we'll talk about probably a couple of months from now, given the trajectory of how we're going, we too are given the opportunity to live this life in Christ and return to the Father, regardless of how far we fall away. And it's for this reason that we are recognized as firstborns within the family of Christ, within the Father's eyes. And we see here that, again, what's happening when they enter Jerusalem for this 40-day blessing is what was written in the law of, the Lord. So every firstborn, every child that opens the womb for the first time is holy to the Lord. And that's not only for children, that's also for animals. So every firstborn animal would be the sacrificial offering. So this is the motif that we see playing out. They're not burning babies. The baby is coming in and being offered in the same way that the animal would be offered. Because when the animal is offered as a whole burnt offering, well, that's again offering the gift that was given to us by god and this is the way that god had prescribed to his people in the old testament in the old covenant to be able to pay this honor it's by burning whole burnt offerings of animals and those animals would come from the first fruits of the harvest from the first fruits of the flock and in that same vein the human first fruits are offered up to God to continue that motif to continue this lineage, and we see that the sacrifice that is offered here of a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons, if we're a bit familiar with Levitical law, this isn't the most valued offering that could be made. The most valued offering would be a bowl, the the first fruits of the flock. Like I said. But the option for people of low esteem, people of poverty, would be to be able to bring turtle doves and two pigeons, some uh, clean birds to offer up to God, because that was something that was more affordable. And again, this is reminding us of the place that Jesus is coming from. He's not rich. His family isn't rich. And that's continuing to play out this motif that St. Luke will hammer home over and over again of... Great things coming from lowly places and the elevation of the lowly because of the creator of all descending and making our elevation in him possible. Now we see the introduction of another character as they're entering the temple and that's Simeon. A man who is said to be righteous and devout looking for the consolation of Israel. And we hear, like with Zechariah and Elizabeth and John and the Theotokos before, he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And through some way, the Holy Spirit has revealed to him that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he has this inkling that he's not going to die before he sees the salvation of his people. And we see that he's not constantly in the temple, He's not a priest or anything like that, yet he's, in verse 27, inspired by the Spirit, and he comes into the temple. And when the parents are bringing in Jesus to do for him according to the custom, in swoops Simeon, and he picks the baby up in his arms and proclaims what comes next. So to, again, paint the picture, we have this guy coming into the temple, sees this baby, Holy Spirit inspires him to realize who this baby is, because, again, there's nothing distinguishing him. There are these poor people coming in with their birds to offer for the 40-day blessing, and yet this man who is waiting for the consolation of what's to come, inspired by the Holy Spirit, identifies this lowly child as the Christ. And as he picks the baby up in his arms, the Christ child, he cries out, Lord, now lest thou servant depart in peace according to thy word, for my eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all people. So in verse 29, we see a confirmation. Okay, Lord, now you can let me depart in peace as you promised, because I've seen the salvation that is to come. Simeon again is an old man well on in years and he's not looking up to god and saying okay you know i've seen the good things to come so i can die now this is all i've been waiting for just you know for me to be able to get my get out of jail free card in life no that's not it at all rather what is emphasized here is a sign that this is the christ and through the prophetic words of simeon we see a confirmation of what has already been prophesied to him it's that in his old age he will see the salvation that is about to come salvation that's going to take another 33 years but he is going to receive that promise and he says that his eyes have seen the salvation which thou god has prepared in the presence of all people so the salvation is not only for simeon and not only for the people of israel but for all people And we see in verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. So he's again solidifying this reality. He's saying that this salvation is not only for Israel, as we see in the second section of verse 22, but a light for revelation to the Gentiles as well, for those who are outside of the fold. But ultimately, it's for the glory of thy people Israel. So it's for the glory of all of those who are waiting before this revelation of the Christ for the Christ to come. Because again, Christ is revealed throughout the entire Old Testament as through a shadow, as through a veil. And it's through these great prophets, it's through these people who are desiring to live this life in the Father that we continue to see these revelations taking place of who he's going to be with the ultimate manifestation being what we see here, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God being born. Now moving on to verse 33, we see a second part to the prophecy of Simeon. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is spoken against and the sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts that throughout that thoughts out of many hearts may be revealed so what do we see here in the second part of this prophecy well i think before we move on to the rest of the prophecy of Simeon it's important to quickly address the identification of joseph as being his father We know, because we've already read the first chapter, that Joseph is not the father of Jesus. God is the father of Jesus Christ, God the Father. Yet Mary is his mother. And oftentimes people take verses like this and they say, well, okay, this is clearly a later edition within the text, so... You know, we can kind of throw away the entire book. There wasn't this motif originally of Jesus being the Son of God. That was something that was added later by the Christians, and these are all innovations. But we need to also understand, in counter to that, the title given to Joseph. Joseph is playing this role of protector. Joseph is playing this role of the man who is going to rear Jesus and bring him up in this world. So in this world... He is filling that role of father. But there's also another way that we could look at this. And it's that if Mary went around telling everybody, no, this child was miraculously received. He's the son of God. They'd stone her because she'd be seen as a crazy person. So for all intents and purposes, as is perceived by the people, Joseph is the father of Christ. We are Christians. We know the whole story. So we know that he is not the biological father of Jesus, but he is still playing that vital role. So I think that's just something that's important for us to touch on briefly, because we're going to hear this again in a future section. Yet, oftentimes, again, people bring up these arguments, and I think it's important for us to be able to have the tools to kind of think about them from a different perspective So that way we're not just caught off guard the minute somebody says something like that. Now moving back into the prophecy of Simeon, we see Simeon bless them, that is Mary and Joseph, and then he singles Mary out. So he singles out the mother, which again would not be something that was socially acceptable at the time. If he was to address anyone, it was going to be the patriarch, the the father of the household. And yet Simeon, filled with the Holy Spirit, Prophesies to Mary, behold, this child is set for the falling and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is spoken against. So, what do we see here? We see that those held in high esteem, those in high place, are going to fall because their status that they've been holding themselves up to is revealed to not be greatness as was perceived before. Those of high esteem were seen as elevated within a social context. And yet, in the coming of the Christ, we see the rising of those who are fallen, the rising of those who are seen as lowly. And as a sign, we're going to see those who are spoken against. So for a sign, we're going to see this is what is manifesting. What is written on their hearts is going to be revealed through the signs of the elevation of those who are lowly and the descent of those who choose not to live a life in Christ, choose not to lower themselves as Christ has lowered himself. And we see in verse 35, this prophecy, And the sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts out of many hearts may be revealed. What we see here is the first prophecy of the crucifixion within St. Luke's Gospel account. And what he is telling Simeon, that is, Mary, is that in watching your son offer his life for the life of the world, you will experience similar pain. You will experience the heartache of watching him do this because that ultimately is the plight of a mother. The plight of a mother is you raise your child, you give birth to your child, you rear them, and then you have to let them go ultimately so they can do whatever it is that God is calling them to do. And yet you have as a counter children who are not allowed to grow, are not allowed to leave the house. And when they come to that age of maturation— and that motif is continuing to play out, they're held back from being able to do what it is that God has called them to do. And that comes from a desire to kind of cast off pain. That comes from a desire to not allow for them to go and face the struggle that exists out in the world. Yet as we see in the example of Christ, that is the struggle that each and every one of us is going to have to face in one level or another. So it's the role of a mother to prepare their child for the task that's at hand. And when it's time for that child to go and start their own life, to go and serve God as he's calling them to do, well then the experience that will take place will be like a sword piercing through your own soul also. Because you're going to have to watch them struggle. You're going to have to watch them take on these crosses that you yourself cannot take away from them. And this is the experience that Mary, the Theotokos, is going to take on in her ministry in rearing Christ and allowing for him ultimately to offer his life for the life of the world. And moving on to verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phneul, of the house of Asher. She was of a great age, having lived with her husband seven years from her virginity. And as a widow, till she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at the very hour, she gave thanks to God and spoke to him, to all, spoke of him to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So what we see here is that there's a prophetess, and her name is Anna, and From the time that her husband prematurely passed away, she spent all of that time fasting and praying and worshiping in the temple. And around the same hour, when Simeon is making this prophecy, it says that St. Anna also comes in and prophesies. Now, St. Luke doesn't outline what her prophecy is here, but it's clearly stated that she's a prophetess. And what's important about her is that we see in verse 38 that coming up at that very hour she gives thanks to god so that's when she makes her prophecy she sees the christ she also experiences this coming of the savior that simeon experiences but towards the end when we see that she speaks of him to all who are looking for redemption of jerusalem we see again these seeds being planted We see St. Luke again showing his hand as to the sources that he has of all of this evidence, all of these things that have taken place. Because of the people who are listening to Anna prophesying of what she saw of the Christ being born, these are the people who heard her, kept that to heart because they were also looking for the salvation of Israel. And... When all of these things were manifest, when Christ offered his life for the life of the world and the church continues as we're going to see within the book of Acts, these are the people who are then putting all of those pieces together. They're remembering all of these great signs and wonders that they saw 33 plus years before because all of those things will ultimately be made manifest through Christ's resurrection and ascension in the life of the church that we live in today. So, moving on to verse 39 And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and favor of God was upon him. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he was twelve years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the company, they went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at the understanding in his answers. And when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been looking for you anxiously. And he said to them, How is it that you sought me? Do you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying which he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to nazareth and was obedient to them and his mother kept all these things in her heart and jesus increased in wisdom and in stature in the favor of god and man so all the way back in verse 39 what do we see we see the things that needed to be performed by the law of the law were fulfilled and the parents that Mary, Joseph and Jesus return to Nazareth because remember they were in Bethlehem and now they're returning to Nazareth after presenting the child in the temple. And we see that the child grows and becomes strong, filled with wisdom in favor of God and the favor of God was upon him. So 12 years goes by and now his parents go up to Jerusalem as they are said to do every year for the feast of the Passover. This is their pilgrimage back to the holy city of God. And when he's 12, they go up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, they're returning, and the boy stayed behind in Jerusalem. And his parents don't know. You need to think about this, again, from this nomadic perspective. They're in this broader family. They're in this large village unit. And it would be customary to, to just assume that, okay, he's probably with relatives, he's probably with cousins or acquaintances. And yet, we hear a day goes by and they're continuing their journey and they're starting to think to themselves, okay, well, where's Jesus? We haven't seen him in a while. Let's start asking around, seeing if anyone's seen him. All of a sudden, they're hearing from their relatives that they haven't seen Jesus. And when they can't find him, they return to Jerusalem. So that's another day and a half's journey. And we hear after three days, they found him. And where he was was sitting in the temple among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed as understanding and answers. So what do we see here? We see this 12-year-old boy sitting in the midst of the equivalent of great theologians, PhDs, you name it, the highest teachers you can think of. These aren't elementary school teachers that he's talking to. These are people who are revered by everyone as being the greatest scholars of that time. And he's sitting among them, listening to them, and asking them questions. So he's not sitting there and lecturing because that would be something that would be way too extreme for us to perceive coming from a 12 year old. And yet we still see in the people that all were amazed as understanding and as answers. So what that means is they're talking about the scriptures. They're talking about how God is revealing himself to humanity and what God is calling humanity to do. And the seemingly, because everyone would be at this point, illiterate, uneducated child is sitting here, and in his questioning and in his understanding of the answers that are coming from these great teachers, he's showing this extreme literacy in the scriptures, something that we can assume he'd have because, again, the Theotokos was raised in the temple. She's known all these things. She can show him the scriptures because she knows them by heart. And yet we also know that he's the son of God. So these things are made manifest in an even more profound way. And we see, again, everyone is astonished. And when his parents see him, they're astonished as well. And his mother says to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been looking for you anxiously. Twelve years have gone by since the presentation in the temple. And we see Mary so quickly say that your father and I have been looking for you anxiously. And immediately after that, in verse 49, in Christ's response, we we see him say to them, How is it that you sought me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? This is a reminder to the Theotokos of the things that are about to be manifest. Remember who my true father is. Remember everything that has been prophesied of what is to come. Yet we see here that they did not understand the saying which he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. So we see here that Christ is still going to do what is fitting and right. He is a child. He is entrusted to his parents, Mary and Joseph. And out of love for him... They are doing what is best so he's not going to go off we don't see any more narratives especially within saint luke's account or really any narratives whatsoever within the other gospels of christ and his antics as a teenager or a child because it's not important for the overall narrative of what our salvation looks like again we talked about apocryphal texts last time such as the quote unquote gospel according to saint thomas and I made the statement that there's no such thing as a gospel book that doesn't have a crucifixion or resurrection within it. But if you look at Thomas, well, it's not the gospel because it's a collection of stories and sayings of Jesus, but there's no core of his incarnation, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. Because that's the foundation of our faith. And that's the reason why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four gospel books. Because although they're coming at it, the story, from a different angle, and they have different emphases that they're highlighting, they're still revealing to us this ultimate saving work and this ultimate call that each and every one of us has as Christians today to live this life in Christ. So again, we see that Christ is obedient to his parents, and he returns with them to Nazareth. And his mother, in the very end, Mary, is said again to have kept all of these things, pondering them in her heart. So again, she's holding on to these things, but she's not holding on to them in the sense that she's burying them away. Rather, she's pondering on them. She's trying to make sense of what's happening even though we see that she does not understand the sayings which he spoke to them. And within the final verse of this chapter, we see that Jesus increases in wisdom and in stature, and in favor with God and man. So what does this last verse mean? Well, when Christ is increasing in wisdom and in stature, with this association between the two that we see, What we hear is that the manifestation of his knowledge, the manifestation of his wisdom, is going to reveal itself in ways that are fitting for his age, for his stature. And that's the reason why he doesn't manifest himself until he's in his 30s to the world. He's preparing. He's taking the time to do all that is fitting and right. So that way he's not... This savant child coming out of nowhere and telling everybody that I am the son of God and you all need to follow me. Well, if you saw that happening, especially within that context, you'd either start to throw stones at that individual and say that they're possessed by a demon, or you'd be so overcome by the great signs and wonders that followed him that you would just have to follow along and say, okay, you are God, I am willingly, well, unwillingly in this regard, following in your footsteps. Everything that Christ tells us to do in the scriptures is veiled in a sense. We've talked about this time and time again. And the reason why he preaches to us in parables, he teaches us in this veiled kind of way, is because we need to freely have the opportunity to follow in him follow in his footsteps and ultimately be led to the Father. It's for the same reason that the ascension is a sign of mercy, because in Christ's ascension, in his raising and ascending and leaving us, that gives all of us here in the world today, in the state, the opportunity still to return to the Father, still to seek salvation in him, An opportunity that may not be offered to us if everything was revealed we see legions of angels surrounding God and we are face to face with the reality of Christ coming again because we believe that Christ is going to be a judge when he comes again but the judgment of Christ which seems kind of counter to everything that we read within the scriptures if we think of judge as in this Traditional setting where somebody wears a wig and they sit there and they have a gavel and they say okay You did something bad you go to hell. Okay, you did something good you go to heaven That's not how judgment plays out within a scriptural context Rather Christ is the ideal human being Christ is perfect because he's fully God and fully man. He's the only sinless one yet if we hold ideals in our head If we think about what an ideal is in general, it is a judge. Because when we hold something and idealize it, what's happening is we're saying, okay, this thing or this person is better than me in some way. I'm identifying characteristics within myself that are lacking, comparatively speaking. So if Christ is ultimately the ideal human being, he's the only sinless one, he's fully God and fully man, When we are face-to-face with that ideal, well, what's that experience going to be? If we haven't prepared to live a life in him by living that life in this life, in this age, well, then that experience will be an endless fire. But if we have prepared, if we have built this relationship with him so that we are willing to receive all of the love and the joy that comes with him in his second coming, well then that's at the end of the day what we're talking about when we're saying we need to live a life in Christ. Because in living a life in Christ in this age, in this life, when he comes again, we have already been participants in that ultimate life that is to come. Yet Christ does not give us anything that we are not able to freely accept. And that's the reason why, again, we have this ability to dig into the scriptures and try to understand these things in a more profound way. Because if we didn't have that opportunity, if God just created us so that way we could blindly worship him without any thought of our own, well, we'd just be robots. We wouldn't have his divine image in us that allows for us to be able to be participants in his likeness we wouldn't be able to share Christ with one another just from the kind acts that we can do on a daily basis so it's an ultimate sign of mercy that Christ veils himself in this way it's an ultimate sign of mercy that God didn't just come into the world as this messianic figure that everyone expected who would liberate us from our sin in this radical way with legions of angels. And it's for this reason that we see Christ not only gain favor within the eyes of God, that is doing all that is meet and right, all that is fitting and right in the eyes of the Lord, as we are each called to do, but for that reason that we can idealize him and he gains favor in our eyes as well. So thank you all for listening to this session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study. And until next time, I'll talk to you all later. Good strength for the remainder of your fast. Thank you all for listening to this session of Make His Path Straight, a St. John the Baptist Bible study. Just as a reminder, the point of this Bible study is to invite each of you to gain a deeper appreciation and understanding of the scriptures. So in the coming week, I invite you to take some time to read over the text we have just delved into to see for yourself the depth of meaning that can be presented to us. If you're interested in the sources I'm using for the study, links to the full list of pertinent books can be found in the description of the session. Last but not least, as we've been discussing in the Bible study, the Scriptures are not separated from our lived tradition as Orthodox Christians. So if you'd like to gain a deeper understanding of what it is to participate in these texts and live a life that Christ calls us to live in the Scriptures, I invite each of you listening to join our St. John the Baptist community here in Boston, South End, each Sunday for Orthros starting around 8.30 a.m. and the Divine Liturgy starting around 9.45 a.m. If you don't live in the Boston area, no worry. I've also linked in the bio the Directory of Greek Orthodox Churches as a resource so that you can find Orthodox Churches near you. As always, thank you for listening, and may St. John the Forerunner give us strength as we all set out to draw near the Christ and make his path straight. Amen.